I, you know, I like to just analyze every property. I sign up for all these commercial brokers. They'll send you properties that come out, analyze them. Just like if you're buying a house, you know, get on every wholesaler's list and analyze those deals. Maybe you go tour the property. You never know who you're going to meet when you're there. You never know who you're going to talk to, what you're going to learn. Do the same thing on the commercial side. Just, just get out there, start talking with people, walk properties, talk with owners, talk with brokers, and then pretend like you're actually going to do the deal. Walk through the financials on every single one. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Greetings, friends and families. I'm Neil Henderson, and you're listening to the Road to Family Freedom podcast. Our guest this week is Darren Smith from SellMyHouseToSmith.com. He's a veteran real estate agent with over 18 years as a professional real estate investor. He's flipped, he's rented, he's wholesaled hundreds of residential properties. Recently, he made the shift into commercial industrial properties. So in this episode, we're going to learn how he's bringing the lessons he learned from his high-volume wholesaling operation to finding industrial properties. And we're going to hear the incredible story of how he earned a $500,000 wholesale fee on one property. Our interview with Darren Smith is coming up after a brief word from our sponsor. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sunbelt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things? and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash S-T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. Well, Darren Smith, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Neil. Absolutely. So, before we dig deeper into your background, I have to hear this story of how you assigned a property for over $500,000. <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I won't say one of my best. That was definitely my best uh, so far to this point. Really, the story behind that is I've, I've done you know hundreds of houses now where wholesaled or flipped. And when I moved, I made a transition over to the commercial side. Really, what I was finding, you could do a lot of the same things. You transition them over. And you just kind of add a zero. And so this was a property that I've been, uh, everything commercial takes significantly longer to do. The timeline is just so much slower. And I've been talking to this uh, owner of this property for over two years. And we worked out actually a, a partial seller finance deal. And it was one that I had intended to buy and hold. It was a 30,000 square foot manufacturing facility, really like the area of the property. And uh, I was going to buy it. And uh, before I closed on it, I was going to find a tenant to lease it because it was basically vacant for, uh, for all intents and purpose. My broker talked me into doing a for lease or sale contract when I put it out uh, before I closed on it. And within a couple of days, he had someone in his office uh, who was a someone they'd worked with many times who had some 1031 exchange money they needed to place. And they they basically uh, bought it. They, they went for my asking price, which was, uh, you know, was he said, put a price on that, you know, would make you happy. And I did. And we worked out a deal uh, and made it work. So I'm actually uh, not closing on that property at all. We're closing on it in about a month. So I technically don't have that in the bank yet, but but it's one where we're going to go to closing in a Pennsylvania, it's called a novation. So I take my contract and I assign it to him and we novate it in a closing and I just get the spread. So I have a $1.3 million purchase price and I'm assigning it for 1.85. Um, and so I'll take commissions off of that uh, to go to my broker who did a fantastic job. I love him. Highly recommend working with brokers because they'll they'll make you way more money than they cost you uh, in the end, and uh, and that's how I that's how I put that one together. And everybody's happy. The seller's very happy. He's getting everything he wanted. We have a great relationship. Uh, the buyer's happy, and of course, I am as well. So the broker's just working as this as the seller, like a seller's agent for you, correct? That's exactly right. It would be the exact same as if I did own the building. 
he puts it up for lease or sale because I have an equitable interest in the property through my uh, agreement of sale. Gotcha. All right. So you flipped, you've wholesaled hundreds of residential properties. Uh, but as we're discussing, you've recently made the shift to commercial industrial properties. Can you talk about how that shift came about? I can. And really, it's kind of like, just like how I got into residential, it's all kind of fortuitous meetings of people. I got into residential because I happened to, I got out of the army, I was working computers, I sat next to a guy who was big into flipping houses. And I say big, he'd done a couple of them, and a couple of rentals, a couple of flips. For me, it was huge at the time. So same thing happened with commercial. It was, I had two friends, I had one friend who was doing some commercial, getting into it a little bit, a small multifamily, uh, some office. And then he had a friend who was doing it even at a bigger scale, uh, you know, seven figure deals, some eight figure deals and just hanging out with those people, getting to kind of learn like this, it's a whole new language. It's a whole new world. Uh, something that, you know, you, once you, once you kind of get the bug on that, you see like, wow, I can take a lot of the same things that I've been doing on the residential side, apply them over to this, this space where, um, while it may be not, maybe it is definitely a more sophisticated type of investment. You really, you do have to know what you're doing. You have to learn the language. You have to operate at a higher level. I would say it's actually less competitive. There's way less people in the space. And so if you're able to operate at that level and, and learn the skills uh, needed, you know, a lot of times I'm the only person talking uh, to the, the owners of these properties, these buildings, whereas we still are doing you know, several houses a month flipping and wholesaling. And as many of your listeners probably know, if they're trying to buy houses right now, it is insanely competitive out there. And there's a stack of postcards on the desk and you're one of five people they've met with that week to try and sell. And so that's what kind of made me do that transition. And while it's been slow uh, and it takes, took, a, took a lot of learning uh, now that I'm, now that it's kind of scaling up, it's just like doing houses. And it's once you kind of learn, it's, it's been a lot of fun. What was, you think, the, the key piece of knowledge that you had to learn that you didn't know before that's allowed you to be successful with the, on the commercial side? Oh, I, w- I wish I could answer that and just say there was, there was one simple thing because they're always looking for that, that one key piece. If I had to, to tell somebody if they're, they're maybe flipped a couple of houses and they're, they kind of know the residential side really well and they're saying, hey, how would I make that transition over? Um, it's a lot of the same things on the residential side of it's your relationships. So for me, it was reaching out to brokers. So just calling brokers and, and talking about what it, what it is I'm trying to do. Hey, you know, tell them any experience that you've had, tell them what you're, what you're looking to accomplish. Um, hey, I've, I've done a bunch of houses. I've done this. Here's my experience. I really want to get into commercial, you know, and I had one who took me under his wing right away. He literally gave me almost an entire day tour around the city that he does properties in that, you know, that he's been working in for 30 years, very experienced. And he showed me things and, and really just kind of opened my mind that way. So while there's books you can read and you obviously have to just start analyzing deals. Um, I, you know, I like to just analyze every property. I, I sign up for all these commercial brokers. They'll send you properties that come out, analyze them. Just like if you're buying a house, you know, get on every wholesalers list and analyze those deals. Maybe you a tour of the property. You never know who you're going to meet when you're there. You never know who you're going to talk to, what you're going to learn. Do the same thing on the commercial side. Just, just get out there, start talking with people, walk properties, talk with owners, talk with bro- uh, brokers, and then pretend like you're actually going to do the deal walk through the financials on every single one so that when you do have one that, Hey, this one, that, that way you recognize a deal and you know, when, when one come across your desk, I just sent a bunch of mailers. And so I'm, I'm taking, I'm analyzing a lot of properties right now on, on the industrial side. Uh, it's, it's kept me really busy, but I've been able to do that because I've been doing this for a couple of years and I can quickly, someone calls me up within five to 10 minutes. I can kind of get a feel for, Hey, is this a deal? Is this not a deal? And if I get one, that's a deal. I'm, I have one that I'm spending a lot of time on right now because I, because I really want this one. And I know that where I may not have recognized that in the past. Um, I know when I was just getting into wholesaling residential real estate, I would spend an hour on the phone or more with somebody who had zero chance of doing a deal with. And, and I wasn't, uh, I didn't have enough knowledge and sales ability to even know what that looked like and that I was wasting my time. And so you're going to do that in the beginning, except that, you know, I, I spent years doing that uh, before I got better at it. So there, there's no one thing, but if they just get into it, start talking with people, meeting with people, analyzing deals, they will learn what they need to, uh, to over time, just like they did with houses. Well, and it's, you know, the main thing with, with commercial is just primarily just the way it's valued. It's an income producing property. So it's based on, it's going to be revenue minus expenses divided by the cap rate. And, you know, and that's really, it's not the fluffy, you know, well, that 
three, two down the street sold for $250,000 last month, you know, and the people don't like the drapes in this one. You know I mean? It's, it's, that's one of the things I like about it. It's a lot more, it's just a lot more concrete of the, the way the things are valued, you know, and you know that if you can increase, if you can increase the revenue or lower the expenses, you're going to increase the NOI and therefore you're going to increase your cash flow and you're going to increase the, uh, the value of the property. And I, I just, I love, you know, I love the way that works. Yeah, Neil, you're exactly right. These are very much based on cap rate. So, so you can figure out, hey, I need a certain cap rate, I need a certain return on my money. And that's how you know what the property's worth. That said, the things that make it, uh, that, that make it easy can also make it a bit complicated. Because if you move a cap rate, I mean, just, let's just take multifamily right now. I'm seeing fours really, but, but five sixes regularly on the cap rates on these properties. Well, if you have a mobile home park going at a six cap right now, and by the way, for your audience, a cap rate means uh, for every you're getting a six percent return on your money. So if you're if the investment costs hundred thousand dollars, that means you're getting six thousand dollars of net operating income of NOI per year. That's a six cap. If you were getting an eight cap, it would be eight thousand dollars of return on your hundred thousand dollar investment. So you know, back to the mobile home parks, if they're going at a six cap, well, historically speaking, they're closer to you know twice that. So when that corrects, which you know the market always does, it goes up and down. You go from a six cap to a twelve cap. If you paid a million dollars for that property, if your cap rate doubles, the value of the property just cut in half. So now you have a property worth five hundred thousand dollars. So the swings in the market can really be just as volatile as you see in some of the cities right now uh, with residential properties. The other factors you really got to look into. I have properties right now where I I would buy that property on a on a seven or eight cap, and it would be a great value for me. I have other properties. I wouldn't touch them at a, at a 15 cap. And the difference really is the location of the property, the age of the property, how well it's been maintained, the tenant in the property, uh, how many years are left on their lease. If you have a, a mom and pop tenant with, you know, it's on a 12 month renewing lease, you know, maybe, and they've been there for three years, that's going to work way less than if you have a national credit tenant or somebody who's been in there a long time, a large company with, with solid books and they have five, 10 years left of term uh, left on their lease, you're going to accept a much lower return on your investment for that safety than you would uh, somebody who's definitely much, much more volatile risk. Again, you, you bring up a great point there, which is that cap rate is also a function of risk. It's not just, it's not just return. Uh, you know, typically the higher the cap rate, the higher the risk, you know, obviously people are going to want to make more money for putting up their capital and usually the lower the cap rate, the lower the risk, you know? And so that's why you, you know, what you're discussing here is saying, you know, Hey, if there's a property that's got a little riskier tenant, I'm going to want more money for what I'm, you know, for what I'm putting down. So the cap rate's going to go up. That's exactly it. And I, I buy a lot of buildings and, and one of the ways just with buying houses, the way that you, the way that you buy properties and you're saying, oh my gosh, you're going to be so nervous when you go talk to this property. So you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know the, how you value the building and those kind of things. If I had to give one piece of advice, it's just like when you walk in to buy a house from somebody, stop thinking about all that stuff. Stop thinking about how am I going to make this deal work and what do I need and how much can I pay and analyzing every little thing. You, you got to know that stuff and you're, you're going to get to that eventually, but Step back and just focus on what the seller wants. It's always about what the, you know, how you're helping that other person. And so if you walk into a home and you're, you're, you're a wholesaler, you're flipping and you're trying to buy it, the first 90% of your conversation, while yes, maybe it's talking about the house. Hey, could you tell me a little bit about the house? You don't care about the house at that point. What you care about is what's your situation? Is there any motivation? Is there any pain you're trying to solve? Is there any opportunity there where maybe they want to move somewhere? On the industrial properties, maybe it's, you know, what stage of life are they in? A lot of people that I work with are, you know, older men and they're, you know, they've, they've done well. They've been successful. They're looking to just get rid of that, that part of their life. They're like, I've made a bunch of money. I'm looking to retire. I'm, to be honest, half of them are moving to Florida. <laughs> and so they don't want to, you know, deal with that legacy property. So focus on that. Focus on what problem are you solving? You know, how can you get them there? And, a lot of times I've been able to negotiate either a better deal um, because again, I'm helping them. I'm making sure I solve their problem first and I focus on the, on the deal and the term second. Um, and once I've solved that, like I said, I may be able to get a better price than it makes sense where I'm not paying full, full retail or I can pay full retail. I've, I've bought properties at full listing price um, because I was able to maybe save them on taxes because of the way we structured the deal. Or maybe I worked out some type of seller financing for a portion of it to where 
I was able to get in a little bit lighter, made the property a better value for me because I'm putting in less money and a better, uh, better return. I also like uh, having the seller stay in the property a little bit sometimes. Again, I, not every time, but sometimes if it's a little bit more of a risky property. And the reason I like that is it shows they have faith in that property too. If someone's saying, hey, I'm willing to leave 20% of my equity in this deal and pay me over time, you know, they know they're not doing like a dump and run. Uh, you know, they, they know, hey, this does return. The, the, the P&Ls, the, the profit and loss statements I'm giving you, they are accurate. And, uh, and you will make enough money to pay your bank and to pay me uh, and still do okay. So that's the only thing I like about it. But focus on the seller. That would be the one piece of advice that's going to get you through uh, a lot. Focus on your seller. Focus on if you, if you have private lenders in the deal. How are you solving their problem? It, don't go into that conversation with your private lender. What's the lowest rate I can get? Or what's the best terms? No. What are they trying to solve? How long do they need their money? What kind of returns? What are they doing now? What do they like and not like about what they're doing now? And find a, a way to structure what you need that fits their needs first. If it fits their needs and you can also make it work yours, great. If not, don't force a, a round peg in a square hole. Uh, you know, hey, tell them, hey, we're just not a good fit right now. The, way, the things you're looking for, Hey, the price you're looking for on your building or this, how fast you need to sell it, you know, not a good fit for me and how I buy. If you're borrowing money, hey, the terms you're looking for, you know, you, you need your money back in you know, four months. That's just not a good fit for the, the way. Hey, let's stay in touch. Maybe we'll find something how we can work together in the future. But right now, I guarantee if you go in with that mentality of solving their problem, but not trying to force it, making sure you're solving their problem first, you will end up with way more deals and you end up with way more private money uh, in the end because people know you're looking out for their best interest first. Uh, and if you do that, it's, it's a win-win. It's such a great point, solving their problem. You know, you're not trying to solve your problem, which is I want to buy this place yeah. at a good price that's going to you know make me money. You're trying to, your first goal is to solve their problem. Can you... Uh, you mentioned a few of them, but can you talk about some of the the problems that you'll run into with a potential seller that, you know, gives you an opportunity to try and solve their problem? Definitely. And I, I get asked a question a lot, uh, sometimes by my wife, like, why, why would they agree to to do that to those terms or to whatever it is? And, you know, what are some of the reasons? And the, the reasons honestly are as vast as there are people out there. Everybody kind of has their own little thing they're looking for and their own, uh, their own pains, their own opportunities. But some of the most common ones are they have another opportunity to look to take advantage of uh, a building. I'm, I'm under contract on an office building right now. I'll be closing that June 1st and the seller, they just retired recently and they have their eyes set on this property uh, down in, in Hilton Head. And they want to buy that house and they want to retire and the wife's about to retire and they, they want to get in there. And so by me helping them achieve that, we were able to work out terms of work for both of us. Another one's um, more related to the property are just the condition of the property. Maybe they've had it. They, they don't have enough money to maintain it well over time. Needs the new roof, need, you know, needs just, just fix up. So therefore, it's rented much below what market value would bring. And they don't want to deal with the hassle of that. And I have that conversation and I say, hey, you know, Mr. Seller, Mrs. Seller, you know, if you put in X number of dollars, 10,000, 50,000, some of these buildings significantly more, you could, instead of only making, you know, X on it, you could make, you know, this additional funds and tell them their options, you know, talk about those options. Don't, don't leave that elephant in the room. You know, hey, why don't you list this property? Why don't you fix it up? Why don't, if you just um, did this and raise the rents, you'd make more money. They will tell you why they don't want to do that. And if they want to do that, they'll go do that. And, and that's fine too. Uh, but yeah, so another, again, the other example would be fixing the property up. If it needed, uh, needed a lot of work, maybe they're in some financial stress. Uh, a lot of these people own multiple properties. So maybe they have one that's had a vacancy and they're not going to tell you this right up front. <laughs> Don't think you're going to go in, Hey, I'm desperate. I need to, I need to sell this thing because I'm losing cash on this other one. I need to take it out of here, but if they have a vacancy in another property. Well, if they have a lot of equity in the one you're looking to buy and you can help them get that equity out very quickly, that you know, saves them from financial distress uh, in some other situation. But a lot of times, I'll be honest, it's, it's a different type of person you're talking to uh, in a lot of ways on the commercial side versus the housing side. We help a lot of people on the housing side who, unfortunately, they are in, I won't say dire straits, but they just, they have more of a need, uh, so to speak. You know, they're, they're facing a foreclosure. They inherited a house that's dilapidated. We buy a lot of houses from people who just 
don't want to go with the hassle of listing with a realtor and, and they want a quick, easy sale. So we get some of those, but more often they, they have to sell for some reason or another. Um, whereas on the commercial side, it's, uh, it's significantly more, I want to sell. It's not this distressed situation. It's a, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm making some changes. I'm making, uh, you know, they, they're talking to their account. They're talking to their tax advisor and their attorneys. And, and we're, planning this out in, in the most advantageous way for everybody. They have the time and the resources, you know, there, there's no stress. I get that. I do a lot of marketing, which we can touch on that too, on the industrial side. And one of the common things people call me up and say, Hey, I, you know, I got your letter or I got, you know, got your call. Um, hey, just, you know, like I don't have to sell this thing. Like I'm, I'm happy with it. And my reply is, Hey, that's fantastic. Like most of the property they buy are people who are absolutely happy with their property and don't need to sell. If I can, we can work out a win-win. Great. If we can't, hey, that's fine too, and we'll just stay in touch, and maybe in the future um, that we can work together. But it's it's a it's a more financially sophisticated person on the commercial side, so you have to be ready to have those conversations. It's again, it's about building rapport. You're not dealing with somebody who's typically distressed. Maybe you're lucky enough to come across you know somebody who owns an industrial property that's looking to just unload it quickly, but a lot of times they're doing fine. And it's just a matter of, like you said, coming up, figuring out what it is, what, what their pain point is with whatever it is they're doing. I've got a, a friend of mine right now who's buying a um, beachfront motel, you know, 20, 20 room motel owned by this guy who's like 82 years old. And he doesn't really want to sell, but he's, he's also, uh, he's really paranoid about the Biden administration raising capital gains taxes. Maybe he's justifiably concerned, maybe not, whatever, but like he wants to sell now and he's already gone through one contract and somebody wasn't able to perform and it fell out of contract. So now his pain point is, I want to make sure you can perform. And so, and so that's the kind of thing you need to suss out when you're, when you're having a conversation with somebody, if they had tried to sell it, you know, previously and it fell out of contract they're probably going to be a little concerned about someone not being able to perform the second time they go under contract. That's an excellent point. That's a perfect example of their pain point. They like theirs is security of the cell. And so those conversations are all based around how you're able to show um, I, a property I bought recently. The guy called three references from other properties I bought before. I've never had somebody call one reference. Ever. I've had people ask for them. I've given references, but nobody's ever called. This guy called all three of them, and they all thankfully spoke very highly of our transaction. Um, but that was his pain point. He wanted to make sure that I was a legit person who could actually stand behind what I was doing. And it sounds like your your situation is the same thing. So you find out what that thing is, and you make you make sure you can solve it. One of the the part of the language that we like to use before we talk numbers, before we get to anywhere where it's uh, you know turning out the terms and everything. You have to have found all those things out. So uh, the way we'll phrase it is, hey, you know, Mr. Seller, Mrs. Seller, it sounds like, you know, you know, you're trying to accomplish, you know, this and this, right? And so if we're able to solve for that and that and, and get you here, if we can work out the terms like that, that's what you're looking to do. Is that is that does that sound right? And you know, and they'll tell you yes or no. And then you say, Well, you know, say, hey, that's great. I think we can solve those things. Is there anything else that that you would need to, you know? make sure is taking care of in this sale. Is there anybody else that you need to talk to just to make sure you have their buy-in on this? You know, I want to make sure that, that we're solving all your problems, that everybody is, you know, nobody feels left out on this. And you're doing that because you're getting what we call deal killers. You're getting them all out in the open. The last thing you want to be doing is sitting there and saying, you think you have everything solved and you're there, you're filling out the contract. And then all of a sudden they get there and like, oh, you know what? I really need to run this by my uncle Bob. You know, he just, he's bought some properties in the past. He knows what he's doing. And not that that's a problem. Like, I'm happy talking with Uncle Bob. I love talking with Uncle Bob. The more, I won't say the more, the better, but like, <laughs> I, I can talk to whoever you need to. But that has to be done before you get to where you're talking about all the terms. If you get down to that final end, you know, where you're there, and then now it's just sitting there open, uh, that, that's a bad situation to be in. You probably, once you've lost the deal, but you put yourself behind the eight ball a little bit uh, at that point. Do you ever have sellers, you know, you're sending out marketing, you know, saying, Hey, we want to buy your, your, your warehouse. You get the people who immediately just respond. Well, how much money are we talking immediately? You know, right into, right into, you know, what, what, what are we talking? Show, throw, throw a number at me and maybe I'll talk to you. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Neil, I love your questions. That, that's, that is such a common one. 
anybody who's buying houses, I'm sure, has gotten that on more than one phone call or, uh, for people looking, you know, what are you paying? What are you paying? What are you paying me? And we all know there's there's a lot of factors that go into that. So on the commercial side, it's actually a little bit of an easier conversation to have because on houses, you know, everybody's hopped on Zillow. Like, like oh, here's my Z estimate or here my, my neighbor down the street, you know, sold for $500,000. Forget the fact that it's a thousand square feet bigger with another bedroom and a bath. They don't, they don't see that. They just know it's sold for higher. <laughs> That's a whole other situation. On the commercial side, uh, it's, it's an easier conversation because realistically, you can't come up with that number just like on the fly. And so what I'll do if I feel there's if I feel there's motivation and like, hey, this other person actually wants to sell and they're not just fishing for a number, I'll go into, hey, you know, Mr. Seller, Mr. Seller, hey, I, I appreciate the question. I get that all the time. The, the way I buy properties, it's just me. You know, I, I own the company. It's, it's my money. So I have to, I buy properties based off the income they, they produce. I want to buy them. I want to hold them. And so for me to figure out what that number looks like, uh, what I have to do is get a little bit more information to you so I can figure out what is, you know, what do we have here? What is the actual building? What am I able to rent it for? You know, what's my, what's my, my triple net rate on the, on the building per square foot? You know, what can I actually get for it? And then what if any work is needed to get it in the condition or to get that price? So if you're actually, looking, you know, if you're looking to sell, and I mean, I bought a lot of buildings, I think I can help you out. Um, but we're, are you good with answering a couple of questions so we can kind of dive into that a little bit more um, and see if we're a good fit for each other. So that's how I'd handle it if I think there's some motivation. If I don't think, if I think it's kind of, you know, someone's truly just fishing, they're kind of, some people are a little bit abrasive. Let's be honest. They're, they're trying to, you know, uh, push you away a little bit and, and show that they're, you know, in the dominant position. I will actually just cut to a number uh, pretty quickly. And I'll, I'll do something like, hey, you know, I, I know the buildings in that area, they rent for about this per square foot. You know, if we run the numbers on yours, you said you got a 20,000 square foot building, you know, looking for in this rate, I'll add a number on the cap rate just because, again, I'm trying to start the negotiations there because they're, again, kind of being a little bit uh, forward on it. I if that's a, to use a nice word. And I'll just throw out some number like that. It's like, and I'll say, are we even in the ballpark on this one here? And go from there. Uh, and it, it really, I probably had a, a small chance of making it happen anyway. So I, I've never bought a building from somebody that I didn't, I'll say at least like in some way, wasn't able to build rapport with, wasn't able to have a relationship of some kind. So again, back to the beginning, learn where not to waste my time. I'm not saying I won't follow up those people. I'm not saying I won't try and help them. Um, I'll definitely, you know, if, if things turn around, I'll go meet them and we'll see if we can work out a deal. But that's how I answer the question on, you know, just, just give me a number, give me a number because it, it is very common. So let's talk about marketing. How are you taking what you've learned about marketing in the residential real estate world into marketing for commercial industrial? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great I know, question. I know that's a big, it, I know that's a very, very broad <laughs> subject, but you know, we can sort of start there and I'll dig in. Well, it's, it's kind of broad, but actually it got simpler on the, uh, on the commercial side. And I say that because uh, I mean, uh, my, my home buying company, we spent over a million dollars in marketing in the last five years. So we have tried everything you can think of. And, you know, if you're wholesalers buying houses out there, you, you know, the list of stuff. And so what I did was I said, what are some of the, I just want the core couple of things. And by the way, we, we've adjusted our residential marketing to kind of follow this line as well, where we have narrowed in our focus. We, we used to have a dozen different marketing channels. We really have, I'll say three or four at this point, you know, the letters calling uh, a little bit of texting. And by the way, those are very narrow focus. When I say no, narrow, I mean, motivated leads. They're ones that have tax liens, you know, probate, divorce. We don't do these, you know, 20, 30,000 mailers a month stuff anymore. Uh, it's just not cost effective in this market we found. So we've really focused on our target, who we're hitting, and then how we're hitting them, we're hitting them in less ways. And then I kind of carry that over onto the industrial side as well. So we do three things. I do mailers and I'm sorry, really, I'll say three ways because one is, is actually critical. I bought two vehicles, two buildings this way. For one is mailers. The other, we do cold calling. So we pull data, um, but it's not this mass cold calling you think of where there are these auto dialers and stuff. It's one at a time. We get the number. It's very, um, everything we're doing, we're doing it at a higher level. So it's more professional. It's more one-on-one -on -one basis, very much more uh, customized and tailored on the industrial side. And then the third way I'll say is critical is referrals. The office building I mentioned earlier, 
was a referral. You know, people know I'm buying. People, uh, you know, know hey, you're out there. You're you're looking to pick up properties, and so people will call you up. Brokers will call you up. This one was a property manager actually. Uh, he knew I, I I own another building in that area, and he manages that property as well. And he called me up. He said, hey, just you know, so and so they're they're looking at selling, and you know, I, I manage that building. I have for eight years. It's a great property. You know, it does has good returns, um, great tenants. You know, maybe you should talk. You should talk to the owner, and I did. We met. We hit it off, and I'm and I'm buying it. But back to the marketing, how I how we do it. It's those three things: mailing, calling, and referrals. And again, I I said how the the calling is more customized. Uh, it's U.S. based person only. I have an amazing girl who makes our calls one at a time, nice messages, and then she mails them a letter if we don't reach them every single time. And then the mailers are. Are much more customized as well. Uh, we use, and I've tried all the different ones. I've tried just regular postcards and things like that. We use one now. Uh, it's an auto pen is how the marketing is done. And it's very straight to the point. It's, I think it's 300 characters or less is what I'm allowed to use. And I love that because I'm not wasting people's time. I'm not sending these long form letters, uh, but they actually do this auto pen where it takes a pen on a machine and it hand writes it out. It puts a stamp on it. It's a colored, colored envelope. Um, and I'm not trying to trick people into like opening this. I mean, I guess it, it does get a higher open rate for sure, but it's more the professionalism that I'm looking to present. Like, Hey, this is a, I'm not spending 36 cents a postcard. I'm spending a dollar 70 per letter, when I, you know, when I mail these things out. So the, the look and the feel of it is somebody like, Hey, this guy, you know, maybe he's legit. Let me, it, it raises your status in their mind a little bit already before they've picked up the phone to, to give you a ring. I've been, you know, I've been marketing for deals as well. You know, we, we buy self-storage, uh, we've been also marketing for uh, some a vacation rental in a in a coastal market recently, and it's it is you know you there is something to be said for you know just having a handwritten what appears to be a handwritten envelope on the outside. It, it doesn't scream someone's trying to sell me on something, you know, and so it people do open it, and I do occasionally talk to you know self storage owners right now are you know, are getting a lot of marketing, you know, they're getting all kinds of stuff. And, and every once in a while, you'll get somebody going, I get, you know, five of these letters a week, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, well, I hear you, you know, but at some point you're, you are going to want to sell and, and you're going to probably grab one of those letters and call that person when you're interested in selling. And so, you know, I get it. It's frustrating. Just throw, throw it away if it frustrates you that much, you know, but at some point <laughs> you, you are going to be in the position where, you know, I think I do want to sell. I want to go live on Hilton head and you're going to pick up the phone and call that. And so that's why you're getting those is someone, you know, the whole idea is that you're trying to be top of mind when someone does finally decide, Hey, it's time to sell. That's exactly it. It's, are, are you top of mind? Are you the one that, that stood out the most? Uh, and not in an inflammatory way. Some people do that where they're like, you know, late notice and things like that. I don't, I don't want to do that kind of standout, but if you stand out in a professional way, um, and I literally had that exactly said to me last week from a building I'm now under contract on. He called me up. He said, honestly, you, you couldn't have had more perfect timing. I just found out last week, the tenants are moving out in August and I, I moved to Florida. <laughs> I live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Again, another one moved to Florida. And, uh, you know, I don't want to deal with the headache of, of fixing up and releasing it. So he said those exact words, um, a little additional piece uh, that I put in mind that allows them to hold on to something longer to stay that top of mind is I have them. I have my letters delivered to me unsealed or, or un you know, they're open. And my wife and I, we will sit on the couch and we will put uh, my business cards uh, in every single one. And my business card has my picture on it. And the reason I say, I've mentioned the picture is, a lot of people have commented to me about that. Like, Hey, I saw this guy here and you know, here they, they can see who they're talking to. Again, it's another way of an extra layer of building rapport. And now that I only have my picture, it, it's a very nice card. I use moo.com, um, M-O-O.com. I think they have really nice cards the way they look and feel. Um, and I think the quantity order, they're 40 cents a piece. So they cost a little bit more, but uh, it's worth it. And I put that in there. Now they have something they can hold on to. So I get calls from people uh, that's why I love the industrial, especially people will hold on to those mailers. They'll hold on to those cards uh, for, for a long time, stick it in a drawer and you're top of mind. Uh, they'll, they'll give you a call down the road. And not that you don't mail them again, not that we don't hit them every couple of months just to, to say hello. But uh, a lot of times they'll, they'll hold on to it and give you a call if you had that nice piece that we talked about that they'll remember. Uh, who are you using to do the, the auto pen? 
We use for all our residential, we use openlettermarketing.com and we use those for kind of the mass mailers. The reason I love that company, they were one of the first that I know of that allowed us to do a, a sequence, I think up to six mailers and all of them can be different and they can be spaced, I think between two to eight weeks apart each. And so that was one for me where uh, data management is used to be one of the worst things that we had in our company. We had spreadsheets upon spreadsheets. Uh, you can't even imagine. We use a company now called REI Sift uh, and they manage, uh, we, we load all our spreadsheets in there and, and my, my lead manager does, and now he's my marketing manager, does all that. And we can tell you everything about our data. You know, We can stack it. We can tell you which ones are vacant, absentee, uh, all sorts of things uh, about it. So before when I was bad at data, I used open letter marketing because I could get a list of, let's just say a new divorce list. I could put that list into open letter marketing, hit, hit, you know, buy. And I knew six mailers were going out over the next so many months to hit them on a regular basis, as opposed to me having to manually go do, uh, do that. So this auto pen feature is something that new that they have. Uh, and I really like it because it looks like a, it's the size of a, like a birthday card or a greeting card. That's the shape and it's an actual card in it. Uh, that goes out and very, very nice job. I know there's several other companies that do this, so I, I can't speak to them. I, I'm sure there's others that do like a long form letter. And if you, that's your, what's your preference, if you really have a lot of information you want to get in, I think ballpoint marketing, that one comes to mind where you can do a long form. I've never used them, but uh, just looking at their website, but I've been really happy with, with open letter marketing. You also mentioned that you keep your, you keep your letter, your copy short. Is there a reason mm -hmm. for that? I do. For me, you know, that, that credibility factor, as we talked about, like I've already set this thing up as a professional looking letter. It's handwritten, it's stamped. There's my picture. So I think I've already built rapport in a couple of ways. People are busy, especially, you know, commercial property owners, they get more mail. There's a, a lot of times they get their mail mailed to like a property manager or somebody that's not them directly. And so when they get their mail, they get a stack. I mean, they're, they're looking at, you know, 30 letters, 50 letters, and I wanted, I wanted something that you know kind of hit them. So when they open it up, it's handwritten, four or five sentences. And, I, and the, the main points uh, that I hit are, hey, who, who I am. So it tells them right up front, I am a local industrial property investor. You're building at you know, 123 Main Street. You know, this right here, what I'm, what I'm looking to buy. I'm the owner and principal. Um, you know, so I, I, when you call me, I'm the one who would be buying your property. If you're at all looking to sell, give me a call and we'll see if we can fit. And I, I'm butchering the words there a little bit, but that's that's basically the gist of it. You know, short to to the point, they want to know, you know, is this some call service? Uh, is this some like, you know, I'm going to call up and speak to somebody in the Philippines before I get routed back to you. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but at the level that I'm dealing with on on these, these deals are so valuable um, and the people are, you know, they're busy. I want them talking to me uh, every time. So that's it. That's why I keep it short. We, we've interviewed a self-storage investor and wholesaler by the name of Fernando Angelucci twice now, uh, episode 14 and then on episode 76. But one of the things Fernando said was with housing, you know, with residential real estate, you can have a, a Filipino, you know, call center answering those calls. But when you're dealing with these commercial properties, you really want to be building rapport right off the bat. And so it really needs to be you, the one, you know, the first, one of the first people they talk to is going to be you because, and, and that rapport building is like, you've said, you, you alluded to it. It's going to take months, you know, a, a residential, you know, transaction can take place in, you know, a month. You can say, Hey, we'll buy your house in two weeks and, and you're good to go. Residential commercial real estate. It's not going to work out that way. I mean, it's, it's going to take months. And so. Are you, is literally the number, you know, that's on your mailer, is it, is it making your phone ring? It, it does. So I use a, a VoIP service. So it is a, it's not my direct cell, but it rings straight to my cell and I'm the one that call them back. So all the mailers uh, calls to come into me and even uh, the cold caller app, she's exceptional at what she does. And uh, she does my transaction management as well. So if you know, transaction management, that's, that's being half a counselor. You got, you got to be good on the admin side, but you also have to be a counselor to, to walk some of these, these home sellers uh, through the emotional roller coaster <laughs> that they're going through sometimes. So she definitely has you know, very high uh, emotional quote uh, intelligence and she can handle it. But I keep the, the, we'll call them requirements for 
heard a set appointment for me are very low. It is, do you own the building? And would you consider selling? Or have you thought about selling? And that's it. If she can get a yes to those two questions, hey, you know, that's great. Uh, you know, Darren, you know, he's, he's the one who buys all these properties. Uh, it sounds like, you know, it might be a good fit. And, you know, is there a good time for him to give you a call back and, and see if you guys can work something out? And on the housing side, that's not even close to the amount of uh, vetting or uh, information that, that we get on the, the cold callers on that side. They, they can have 10, 15 minute phone calls, the information that they're looking to get out of these people to, to really dive in to make sure that it's worth the fit for my acquisition manager, because the volume is so much higher. There's dozens and dozens of leads in that, you know, per week. Whereas on the commercial side, it's, it's very few. So I'm more than happy to jump on the phone with wants to talk because even if we're not a good fit, I literally learn something every deal I get involved in, every conversation I have. I'm always learning new things about an area, new, new ways to help somebody, new new ways of structuring a deal, something. So for me, the, the whole thing is it's, it's fun, uh, it's fascinating, and you know I love it. So just just you know, taking those calls is it's, it's not a burden uh, at this point. And I, I definitely want to get those with the minimum amount of interference between me and that that owner as possible. So let's go back to a. Uh- a question I was going to ask, which is the idea of cold calling. I mean, you've got somebody who's doing it for you, but you know, for, for those people who are maybe looking to, you know, get into this and they're, they're terrified of that thousand pound receiver and picking up the phone and calling a, a, a commercial owner <laughs> directly, you know, how do those, how do those calls go? You know, what do you, what, how do you, how do you sort of get that open, you know, where they're not immediately just like, thanks, but no, thanks. Click. I can recall vividly those those first phone calls, and I can recall vividly the first time my phone ringing when I did mailers, and just how scared I was, uh, you know, of that phone. On the commercial side, it is more and less scary at the same time. It's more scary because you're doing something new. You you're out of your element a little bit more. If you're used to houses. Uh, you you're dealing with people who are a bit more sophisticated, so you might feel intimidated. I'll be perfectly honest. At this point, I still. I have uh, more of a trouble a little bit connecting with somebody who's, I'll say, a high-level professional. Uh, like, let's say they're a, a, a doctor. I mean, my wife's a doctor, so I connect with her. But like like doctors, uh, attorneys, people who operate, you know, who wear like a suit to work, I, I, I struggle with that rapport. And so I will get nervous on a call, even to this day, uh, talking with those people. But you just have to kind of be yourself and relax a little bit. But I'll say the reason it's easier on the commercial side talking to people is because you are talking with professionals. You are talking with somebody. They're not, they know how to deal with life a little bit more, I guess would be the way to put it. So they're not calling you distressed and, and yelling at you. Why are you calling me? Or why'd you mail me something? I don't, I don't have those conversations. They want to actually talk to you, see if you're a good fit, you know, talk, talk as uh, talk as equals. If you can, again, build yourself up enough uh, through either what you're sending them and in the initial conversation, but how you start that call, maybe that's a good way to, that you would help your listeners is, we just very quickly get to the point of who we are and why we're calling. And right off the bat, they know that uh, the worst thing that I get when I, when a, a telemarketer calls me is, you know, Hey, this is, this is Joe calling. How, how are you doing today? Joe does not give up at, you know, uh, anything about how I'm doing today. He's wasting my time with that question. You already you, like you, you feel your aggravation level raise right off the bat. So we don't waste people's time. It's, Hey, Mrs. Seller, this is Darren. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm calling. I see you on the building there at 123 Main Street. I'm a local uh, industrial real estate developer. Just wondering if you'd ever considered selling your building. Immediately. So they know everything about what this conversation is going to be. And we can quickly get to a resolution. I'm not wasting your time. Just like my postcard, don't waste people's time. I'm not wasting time. So with, 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 with that phone conversation as well. And my, my cold caller, uh, she does the same thing. It's very quickly to the point. It's not wasting. A lot of times you'll get a, um, what they call a gatekeeper, you know, a secretary or something like that. The same thing. It's a very similar conversation. Just, you know, Hey, you know, Hey Bob, let's say Bob's a secretary. You know, I'm calling, I see, you know, Mrs. Jones owns the property, one, two, three main street. We just wonder if we could have a quick conversation with her. We're local industrial developers just to see if she ever might have considered selling. And that's it. It's just straight to the point. And again, you're not wasting, honestly, the, the gatekeepers, we, you know, as, as we call them, I don't mean not to be derogatory, but you have to get through them to get to you know, the actual person you want to talk to. They are every bit as important or more uh, as the, the eventual person you're talking to because you have to show them respect. And, and they are important uh, in order to get to, to where you need to be 
in order to actually help that person if they are looking to sell. You know, we, uh, we're often dealing with, uh, with self-storage. Uh, a lot of times you'll call, you'll have some small facility and you call the facility and the actual owner will answer. That's what they do. They, you know, the, every day they're sitting there answering the phone for their self-storage facility, you know, and it's kind of an, it can be a kind of uncomfortable conversation where you're trying to decide, is this a gatekeeper or is this the actual, you know, decision maker? And with storage too, you've got another sort of danger point, which is it could be the manager. And a lot of time managers don't want a facility to sell because, you know, life is good. They're able to kind of skate by doing what they're doing. And they know that if a place sells that they might be out of a job. And so a lot of times, you know, you're, you're dealing with that kind of a little bit more recalcitrant gatekeeper, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, I love what you're saying, which is just get to the point, you know, don't waste my time. Don't say, Hey, how you doing? You know, uh, I'm good. You know, anyway, so with every episode, we always like to come away with uh, people understanding how much it uh, how much money it takes to get into a chosen niche. When you bought your first industrial property, what was the purchase price? How much money did you have to come to the table with? How big was it? So I'll tell you mine, but just like with houses, I mean, the numbers can vary wildly. Uh, seller financing can make a huge difference. Your location, uh, whether you have partners, private lenders, there, there's a hundred factors that can go into this. Uh, the numbers on my first property, and I, I still own this one and love it. It was <laughs> probably a, uh, a bit of a big bite to to, to take uh, for my first one. It, I don't know if it was intentional, but it worked out great. It was a 23,000 square foot warehouse. I bought it for $1.65 million. It had a uh, tenants that had been in there for a long term, uh, but they only had less than three years left uh, of term on their lease. Uh, fully expect them to renew, but that was one of the challenges with the property was the, the shorter lease term on it and getting the bank financing. So I had to go through to quite a few banks in order to work that out. Uh, but the numbers on it were at that time, I was actually able to get a 30% seller financing as a second on that property. And then I went out and got a 70% uh, bank loan on the first. Now you couldn't do that right now in this market that those numbers just wouldn't happen. Banks are requiring a minimum of 10% down and that's on quality assets. So if you've got an, you know, an A quality asset, you're still not going to have to come to the table with uh, 10% plus closing costs. But in this case, I didn't. So I, I literally borrowed the entire 1.65 uh, million at great rates, still cash flowed. I had about a, I, I try and, I, tr I try and shoot for a 4% spread on my bank rate versus my cap rate. So if my bank rate, let's just say it's 4%, I'm only buying at an eight cap. That's where I like to be. This one was a little shy. That was probably like three and a half, but the numbers still worked. Uh, so my my all-in closing costs on that were about $60,000. That's what I had to bring to closing uh, to buy that property. And in the first year of ownership, you know, my taxes just showed I made 90000 on that uh, through principal pay down and cash flow. So, you know, you don't get to spend that money, but, it, you know, it still counts as you're, you're paying down over time. Um, but... I, I say that, you know, I got in light on that, you know, normally that, that wouldn't happen. Um, it's not as common. And I'll also say when you run into problems in industrial, you don't want to go and buy a building like that. And, you know, that'd be your last $60,000 sitting on the table. And I say that because in this case, I did not get paid rent on that property for the first seven months of ownership. It had a, a government tenant in it. And by the time we were able to switch everything over and get the paperwork through the government, which is, used to be arduously slow. Now it's even 10 times slower than that because I'm still dealing with the, some other things. It was seven months before they they paid me my first rent check and they, they, they back paid. So I didn't lose any rent, but you know, I had to be able to float what was a five figure mortgage payment plus expenses every month uh, for that period of time in order to get paid. And so for somebody looking to get into this, I mean, you really, you do want to have some reserves. I would start out, you know, first off, start out a smaller building than that. It depends on what your, your reserves are, but if you can get to something for maybe the price of a house, maybe a small self-storage like you're talking about. Uh, small Bay Industrial is a great one. It's not self-storage. It's kind of like in the middle where you're not renting the users, you're renting to contractors. You know, maybe they have like a furniture shop or something where they fix things, but they're, the bays are usually, you know, two, 3,000 square feet, somewhere in that range. And you'll have, you know, five to 10 bays in a building. Again, these numbers can vary wildly, but something of that range where you spread out your risk a little bit more among your building. So if you have 10,000 square feet and there are 2,000 tenants, you have five tenants 
instead of one 10,000 square foot tenant. So you're collecting, uh, you know, diversifying your risk a little bit there, spreading it around. Um, but yeah, just make sure you have some reserves. Uh, that is everything costs more than you think it does. And you always get paid later than you think you will. And the expenses come out sooner than you, you think you will. So I wish I could give some hard numbers, but it's a little, little tricky to do since every property varies. Yeah. Gotcha. So you mentioned, uh, did you say you bought your first one in Lubbock? Uh, no, no, this was uh, near Letterkenny, Pennsylvania is where I bought that first okay. warehouse. All right. So these are all the, the location of where you're buying these industrial properties is in Pennsylvania, correct? That's correct. And I, I made a mistake early in my investing career. I've been investing since 2003 and that was all residential back then. And one of the big mistakes I made was I got into an asset class I didn't know. It was mobile home parks and I got into it way far away. I had, to, I had to hop a plane to get to my property and I trusted people I shouldn't have trusted. And it was bad luck, bad timing, bad decisions. So Whenever I'm getting into something new for me, if I'm going to be doing it myself, I like to be in an area where I can drive to. So I kind of, let's just say, do a hundred mile radius uh, around where I'm at. I want to be able to drive there in, in you know, three hours. So if there's, if I have a day and there's a problem, I can get there and back, you know, in a work day <laughs> and take care of whatever business I need need to take care of. Um, I also have a residential business in Colorado. I've had that for for many years, and I have a, an amazing team out there uh, who runs that business for me. And, and they actually might run my Pennsylvania residential business as well. So I, I love them. And we're just now getting into where we're starting to market out there for uh, industrial properties as well, because my acquisition manager, he operates at such a high level. He can talk to, and I mean this literally everybody from a, a, a druggie in a house who needs, you know, just looking to, you know, solve their life basically for them up to doctors, lawyers, you know, very high end professionals. And so, uh, because of that, I know he's probably going to do better than I am in being able to help these commercial property owners uh, get to a, a solution where we can help them out. And so we're just we're starting marketing that in that territory as well, which I'm uh, I'm very curious to see how it's going to go, because I know in Pennsylvania, it's much easier to buy houses in Colorado. Colorado is insane is the only word I can give for it uh, when it comes to how competitive that market is. There's just almost no, no inventory. So I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes on the industrial side as well, if I'm going to run into the same thing or if it'll be a little bit looser. So we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, speaking as someone who has a, I have an uncle who just bought a, uh, a house in downtown Denver and it, it was a, it was a tough process. Uh, it was a really, really tough process. Uh, it's a crazy market. You were in Colorado Springs when you built that team, you were on the ground there, correct? I was. I was on the ground. Uh, my wife and I moved there for four years. We loved it and uh, built that business up. And we moved back to Pennsylvania just over three years ago now. And that was kind of one of those tipping point decisions. Do I keep that business going or do I shut it down and build a new one here? And I decided to uh, to keep it going. Now, that said, it's there's been ups and downs. I mean, that's a, that's a crazy business. Uh, wholesaling and flipping, as everybody knows, very highly uh, capital intensive. Uh, you know, your, your monthly expenses are very high. And so that was a that was a tough call in some ways, but it was very easy because I had built such a, a good reputation. I had built a really solid investor list and private lender list, and I knew the area so well. And so because I had built such a high amount of capital in my business from that perspective, I just had to keep it going. Um, I talk about the ups and downs. I'm actually on my, uh, I've had three acquisition managers since I left. I hired a new one right before I left, trained him up. I had another one for a short period. And the one I have now, I have an acquisition manager, I have a lead manager slash marketing manager, and I have a transaction coordinator. And all three of those people, I uh, can't speak highly uh, enough of them. It took a lot of people that I've worked with over the years to get to the, the amazing team that I have right now. And I, I, there's zero chance I'd be able to do half of what I do or even you know without them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that business out there for sure. Uh, they're all you know many times better in their roles uh, than I was when I was doing everything, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably in that position where you you wear all the hats and that is a, a challenging spot to be. So if I have one recommendation for them, if they were looking to offload a couple of things to, to free up some of their time, you know, they have a nine to five, they just, you know, everything is limited. I would say, uh, find the thing that you, you like doing the least, uh, you know, that you're, you're just really not good at. For a lot of people that is answering the phone, you know, taking those calls that are coming in. And then work on that one person, you know, hire somebody, hire, hire somebody really good for that and focus, you know, it's going to take you probably six months to get them to the level that they need to be, to be, to be as good. And 
you want to set very clear goals for them, very clear requirements of what you see that job needs to be. Here's what I need to have happen. I need to have all phone calls returned within X number of minutes. I need to have this, this number of live answer you know, rate. I need follow-ups, no overdue tasks or for follow-ups done. Like whatever it is your requirements are, make sure they are, and then have them report them to you every week. And the reason I say that is I've made this mistake too many times where I hire somebody for a role. I give this nebulous you know, lists of tasks and goals that we want to hit. There's no real metrics tied to them. And I let them kind of string along and string along and string along. Whereas if you have those tied to something concrete every week, they're reporting them to you how it is. It's a yes or no. It's a pass fail. How'd I do? And you will, to be honest, you will fire them a heck of a lot quicker when you realize, because you'll realize quicker things are not being done. And your marketing is so expensive. It is so challenging right now to make that phone ring I mean, we're paying in some cases a couple hundred dollars to have that phone ring one time with the seller. And so if you screw that up, that's a huge uh, cost to your business. You got to make sure it's being done right. So with any business or with any role you're hiring for, please do those things. I encourage anybody, take your time, pour into that person, but don't be afraid to fire. Uh, if it's not meeting up to the standards, don't make the same mistake I've done too many times and let it, let it linger on, you know, find that right person, take uh, the processes that you've learned from that first one, because you're going to screw it up a couple times when you hire, document it out. We use Loom. Uh, it's a plugin, L-O-O-M. So it's video capture. So you can walk through the processes of what you're doing on the computer. And then we we document that out in something called Asana. That's a project management. And we, we'll put the we'll make the video and then we'll put the video link in and then give a quick description. But the reason you do that is because you are going to hire the wrong person. Guaranteed. Someone's going to quit. Someone's going to take a better job. You know, whatever's going to happen, you're not starting from scratch. You now have the documented of at least the basics of what they need to do. So you, you know, now you have something to work with with that next person, and you build on that, and you build on that in every role that you have. For anybody who's listening, go back and listen to that again. You know, because you're absolutely right. I'm a solopreneur, and you know, you have to get into the habit of documenting and delegating. And what you described there is exactly the process of what I've been doing, which is, you know, on, at least on the podcast front, you know, I document all the tasks and I use Trello, which is, you know, similar to Asana. It's just a little project management thing. And I document everything I do and everything, every podcast has a little checklist of what needs to happen before I interview the person, what needs to happen the day I interview the person, what needs to happen, you know, once it's, you know, been done, you know, how do I interact with the editor, the marketing, you know, and all that. And, uh, you know, and the other thing you, you talked about, which is, you know, fire quickly, hire slowly, fire quickly. And that can be a, a tough for somebody who's used to doing things all by themselves. Very tough. Yeah. Very tough. Firing somebody is hard. You want to give them second, third, fourth chance. It usually doesn't improve. One of the things you can kind of use besides your metrics, which are very, very key. You need to be tracking those metrics, but is what, what's your gut feeling? Like, do you feel like you're constantly having to like check on them, ask them about things, follow up with things to, to make sure they were done? If that's your constant feeling and if they, if they cause you more thinking and stress than the problems they're solving, don't even think twice. Move on. Like you, you, you know, you have that feeling. Everybody I work with, like they make my life so much easier. I could, I could fall off the, the, you know, the planet for a week, you know, come back and everything would be better. And that is, that's what you want. You want somebody to make your life easier and better. Gotcha. All right. Final question. And I know this is a hard one for you to answer because you've got your hands in a lot of different pies, but how much time is your, just the industrial commercial real estate side taking each week? For you, a guy who's you know married with kids, uh, things like that. Yeah, I do this full time. I've I left my computer job five years ago. I was actually laid off through some downsizing uh, five years ago, and so I would say uh, I work just as much as, as everybody else does in a nine to five. I probably work, yeah, we'll say thirty five hours a week in my business, and it's probably two thirds on the commercial side and about one third on the on the residential side. That's only because I was able, I built up such an amazing team. Again, I, I stress that definitely couldn't do the, the volume that we're doing on both without that. Because it takes uh, it takes a lot of time. We've built on the residential side where we do a lot of it virtual. Virtual wholesaling and, and flipping um, is ninety five percent of what we do now uh, on the on the houses. Whereas on the commercial properties, a lot of times you do got to kind of meet that person in person. Uh, not always. I, I bought. 
two properties from people that I've never met, uh, you know, in person uh, or, or seen on a video or anything. But most of the time, you know, it's a lot of driving around. I do a lot of property visits and walkthroughs. Um, and that's a that's a critical step when you're talking millions of dollars to be able to build that kind of rapport with somebody and have that trust uh, to make it happen. Could be a self-limiting belief. I had that belief, by the way, for years on houses. We have to meet in person. I need that to be able to build that trust. So please don't take that as gospel, but it's what I, it's how I operate at the moment and, uh, you know, and, and how things work. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy that part of it too. So maybe that's it too. I just like going walk around buildings and chat with people. So it's a lot of fun. Well, Darren Smith, thank you so much for sharing with us today. If any of our listeners want to find out more about you and maybe get in touch with you, what would be the best way for them to do that? I'd love to, for any of your listeners to reach out, happy to help with anything they're working on. Uh, best way to reach me is Darren at sellmyhouse2smith.com. So D-A-R-R-E-N at sellmyhouse2smith.com. Uh, that's my Colorado home buying business. And check out that website too. We're very proud of that as well. Shows you my, my awesome team we got there and look forward to hearing from your listeners. Well, Darren, again, it's been really great chatting with you this morning. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate you having me on. Okay. That was Darren Smith from Sell My House to smith.com. It was great talking with him. So for me, the key lesson learned here was to focus on when you're talking to sellers, focus on what the seller's problem is. Try and find out what, how you can solve their problem. Your problem is that you want to buy a property, maybe their property. They don't care about that. That's not their problem. Their problem is, you know, they're behind their mortgage payments. They're, you know, they're ready to retire and they want to move down to Florida. You know, they're worried about capital gains taxes and they want to, you know, uh, sell quickly, you know, before the Biden administration raises them. So really when you're, when you're talking to them, that's the rapport, you're trying to build rapport, but you're also trying to suss out what are their pain points? What is the problem that they're trying to solve? And then you just come forward and say, how you think you can solve the problem. And if it's a win-win for you both, then you're probably going to buy a property. So money, you know, he's, he's been in, in real estate for a long time. So, you know, he talked a lot about this is with industrial properties and in commercial property. It's a real uh, crapshoot about what you're going to pay for a property. But uh, he bought a property for 1.65 million and he was able to get it with zero down. Uh, it was partial seller financing. Um, he said it'd be a little harder to do that nowadays with the lending requirements, but it is possible to get into these properties with zero down, either with seller financing or, you know, it's asset based lending. So a lot of times you can come to the table and say, listen, I've got investors, other people's money. So knowledge, you know, he talked about Really, once he got wanted decided he wanted to go to commercial, it really came down to just building relationships with commercial brokers and just spending the time getting to know them, walking properties with them, and analyzing deals. Every deal that came across his desk, he analyzed. And I, I can't stress that enough, how important that is to just get in the habit of, even if you have no, there's no way you're going to buy this property, analyze it take the numbers, call brokers, get on their lists and and have them send you offer memorandums, you know, hopefully have some detailed financial numbers so you can plug them into, you know, whatever spreadsheet you're using to analyze deals and just analyze them and, and, and work that muscle and get to the point where you can recognize, Hey, this is a deal. I want this. And I, I can't stress that enough. That's such an important uh, task to add to your, your weekly routine time. This is a full-time job for him. Uh, he said he spends about 35 hours a week. Uh, two thirds of that is on his, uh, commercial real estate endeavors. And the other one third is on the residential wholesaling and flipping business back in Colorado Springs. So could he do this strategy from anywhere in the world? I would say Yes and no. He, he very clearly, he got burned previously, uh, investing long distance. So he really, uh, he wants to invest uh, at least initially when he's learning in an area that he knows someplace he can drive to. He lives in Pennsylvania. He's got a business in Colorado Springs. that's that's running very well. But again, he built that team 
when he lived there and he knew that area. Um, so to each his own, you know, um, I, I, he obviously, uh, he's, he's got his reasons for not wanting to go to areas that he doesn't live in. I imagine that once he gets a little more experienced in industrial, he will probably start expanding. But for now, you know, I think he's, he's smart to, to stick locally. So, okay. Once again, that was Darren Smith from sell my house to smith.com. And we appreciate his time. It was, I learned a ton from this one. I'm Neil Henderson. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.